Welcome everybody to episode 22 of the Blue Skies Dronecast, the podcast by UAV Hub. This is a podcast for the UK drone industry, discussing everything from the UK regulations, new drones, and also speaking to you, the people within the drone industry. Presented this week by Tom Patterson and Matthew Hurst. So uh, yeah, welcome along everyone. This is episode uh, 22, like I mentioned uh, before. And uh, this week, we're going to be talking about um, what happens or what do you need to pay attention to after you've qualified uh, with your GVC certification and uh, you are now uh, the proud owner, I suppose, of an operational authorization. So this should follow along quite nicely from, uh, I think, episode 19, where we talked about how to obtain the GVC and why it was such a benefit. So we're now going to talk about like I mentioned before, kind of what happens after that and things you need to pay attention to and uh, uh, other bits and pieces that you'll need to keep on top of to, to keep this qualification or this uh, authorization um, rolling along, I suppose, really. So a quick uh, over overview or a quick recap, I suppose, of um, what the GVC qualification actually is. It essentially enables you to then apply to the CIA to gain your operational authorization. And uh, with that, you can obviously operate in the specific category uh, with uh, drones that weigh anything from uh, zero effectively or, or 250 grams I suppose up to the maximum which is 25 um, kilograms. The GVC qualification itself actually lasts for five years so it's got a five-year uh, sort of period that it's uh, sort of uh, uh, applicable for uh, and the OA itself that you obviously get from the CAA um, has uh, a one-year uh, validity as well so that will have to be renewed uh, every year with uh, the GVC qualification and like I mentioned that lets you then operate in the uh, specific category so with that let's pretend you've got that through from the CIA you're ready to roll what do you need to keep an eye on um, as you sort of uh, move through the year until your next renewal so uh, we've got a, a couple of bullet points here and I'm not going to go through all of them because that'll be a little bit boring for the listeners so I'll let Matthew chip in with a couple as well so uh, I'll kick off though uh, so first of all we need to make sure that we're um, keeping uh, flight logs and keeping current I suppose really obviously the main thing you're going to be doing is flying the aircraft so therefore we need to record what you've been doing how long you've been doing it for and making sure that you record the minimum which is uh, two hours of flying or more every three months essentially so it's kind of a, a three month kind of rolling contract that you need to make sure you've done two hours uh, during I suppose uh, and uh, obviously the more the better because then that will kind of make sure that you're keeping your currency and making sure that you're uh, sort of uh, in control of the aircraft I suppose really and obviously uh, you can prove that with flight logs remember the app inside the aircraft actually takes care of most of that on a day-to-day -day basis uh, and obviously then we recommend to pull them out of that app and store them in an Excel spreadsheet or some other online application purely because then you've got them in two different places uh, and uh, that's good in case something fails obviously uh, that wouldn't be ideal if you had to renew with uh, with no flight logs that doesn't really work very easily uh, the next thing that uh, obviously we also need to keep on top of as well is uh, sort of equipment and uh, maintenance as well so I might hand over to Matthew uh, on this one so a few bits and pieces to talk about here hopefully yeah, Tom, that's right. So, of course, um, I think just in the couple of points that you've already discussed, I think people's minds are probably starting to think, well, am I doing what I need to just in that first point or two? <laughs> uh, so I think that this is actually quite an important episode that a lot of people will benefit from. So, yeah, back to the point at hand. Uh, equipment maintenance, uh, of course, will be partly dependent on the type of aircraft that you're flying. Some aircraft have specific intervals for specific um 
um, updates of equipment or, or firmware updates, etc., um, and component replacements, etc. Others, of course, don't have a specific time frame, but do need to be maintained on a regular basis and checked physically to make sure that nothing has deteriorated and nothing's coming loose, etc. So, yeah, I think it'll be quite specific to the equipment, but what's important is to understand what the requirement is for the equipment that you have, of course. Um, if you have an aircraft that does have a specific maintenance schedule, then you need to stick that to continue operating legally, of course. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. and I think uh, a lot of uh, the DJI aircraft, I think, sort of specify certain things to sort of be aware of, etc. I guess. Uh, but obviously, again, if you haven't got that type of information, it, it's worth just keeping an eye on things. And uh, th there's never really a, a lifespan for sort of motors or propellers. It's it's a difficult one because manufacturers don't really want to put a limit on it in case it then <laughs> fails before the limit. And then obviously, you could think you could think, why? Well, well, that wasn't my fault. I I should get a new aircraft then because of that. So it's always always good just to have a have a check and just sort of keep up that maintenance uh, sort of as well as you can and obviously while doing a bit of research uh, online it's, as well which it, makes it's sense. interesting Tom you, you mentioned specifically propellers and I think in so many cases that is one of the sort of very specific points of failure if an aircraft's going to fail that's obviously one of the most highly stressed mechanical components and I've seen quite a lot of people chatting about when should I change the props and so on now I don't think as you've said because of the, we're in the same position we don't want to state as specific time frame or anything like that but what I would suggest from experience is if you see any kind of sort of uh, stress mark so if there's sort of a light a lighter colored line across the blade of a prop or something like that that's an indication that it has flexed at some point in time and it's its uh, construction or its sort of strength has probably been compromised in that. So if you ever see anything like that, and that could of course be on the little teeth that engage with the sort of mounting mechanism or in the blades themselves, the hub, any part of the propeller shows that sort of stress, then I would certainly immediately change it and discard that propeller for good. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I think the only other thing that can effectively wear out, I guess, realistically, is um, probably the bearings inside the motors. And again, no idea really uh, of uh, the lifespan of, of these motor bearings. You know, I think normally if they're going to fail, they probably fail quite quickly. If uh, they haven't failed, then it's just, again, the main reason why we always talk about, you know, giving them a bit of a spin, turning the propellers before the aircraft's turned on, because that way, if they are a little bit stiff than they normally are, or, you know, they're a little bit notchy, then hopefully you'll start to get a sense of maybe the bearings do have a problem, but they should last for, I should imagine, thousands of hours, I should think, you know, I, I, I assume that the bearings are probably, yeah. The lifespan of the aircraft in, in most cases, I would have thought for sure. Yeah, yeah, that's it. So maintenance wise, I think that's pretty much most of it covered. Obviously, again, all, all the normal parts about making sure that everything looks like it was or looks like it did beforehand is always a good way of doing things. And then hopefully you'll notice anything that uh, might have changed on the aircraft as yeah. well. So you can keep... Before we move on, Tom, there is one other thing that I think we should mention at this point that we've overlooked um, briefly is also uh, battery maintenance as well. So if you're monitoring mm. the batteries and making and having a look at the sort of cycle, life cycles and so on, I think it's important that uh, the batteries are giving the sort of flight time that they have historically. So if you suddenly find that one of your batteries is giving considerably less flight time than your other batteries, then that's a clear indication that something's going wrong and invariably when they start to go wrong it gets worse and worse relatively quickly you won't find a battery that goes off for a while and then gets better again if you fly it a few more times i think in all likelihood if it starts to, to deteriorate it's time again to discard that battery as well yeah exactly yeah. and i think most of the time you'll start to notice that 
if they are going to start to have problems in colder temperatures as well that's when it normally sort of rears its head it's a little bit like why you know if your car's not going to start it won't really start very well in the winter because there's a lot more strain on the electrics and uh, the systems there so yeah if the batteries are starting to um, show problems in the winter the chances are it'll probably be another summer and they'll start to show problems in sort of warmer temperatures as well so yeah it's always good to monitor that and uh, yeah retire they, they are kind of yeah consumable products really aren't they unfortunately i know they're very expensive but uh, yes they are they are replaceable so that's another thing to be uh, sort of aware of uh, as well so i think that's probably most of uh, the sort of the maintenance and yeah. uh, sort of the equipment upkeep i guess really so the last thing to talk about here and we're actually going to kind of explore this subject in a bit more detail as well is basically making sure that you follow uh, the contents of your ops manual because obviously I think that's sometimes overlooked you know we understand the ops manual uh, we we have one if we've got a GVC qualification um, and to be honest most people just want it so they can get the OA that's really the most important thing but after that obviously then you don't really want to forget about it for a year and then come back to it because it'll be quite confusing so the best thing to do is actually use the document uh, and that way you'll kind of memorize it you'll get familiar with it and the more you do uh, the easier it will be kind of in the long run so what we'll do is probably uh, talk about that in a bit more detail and uh, yeah I'll hand over to uh, Matthew just to mention the most important parts and why the ops manual is uh, that important. Well exactly as you've said Tom I think it's it's very common that people go through a GVC course, come out the other end with a fresh ops manual, which is sort of current at the time of them doing their application. They get their operational authorization and off they go ready to start sort of looking for work and making use of it. And of course, as time goes on, I think that document often gets overlooked. People may well be developing sort of processes and so on to, to work more efficiently and be doing all the right things, but not necessarily documenting that and operating outside of what's what's actually uh, documented in their operations manual. So I think it's important to for anybody operating under the operations manual, and that may, may be multiple remote pilots, for example, to fully understand its content and follow that content. Um, I think what's important to understand about that, of course, is there is sort of a legal liability aspect to this. And we'll talk about that a little bit more as we go uh, through a couple more points. But uh, it is important that you stick to that because if you do have an accident and you haven't been following those procedures which are listed, then of course you'll find yourself in hot water. So if we look at a couple more points, uh, if we go into sort of the key elements of what's contained within the operation manual, uh, and I think what's relevant to this uh, this episode that we're recording, uh, we'll first have a look at operating procedures. And that's sort of what I've spoken around now. The operating procedures will be listed and laid out in quite a bit of detail. And if you operate quite differently from that, then, as I said, I don't think you're doing the right thing. I think it's important that you either update your ops manual to follow what you find to be doing uh, as a practical means of carrying out operations or otherwise take the time to learn and understand the procedures that are listed and sort of adapt to them so that you're doing things correctly. Tom, maybe you want to talk a little bit about the sort of company structure and the, and, uh, and the sort of liability side of things as well. Yeah, for sure. So um, obviously inside the ops manual there's going to be uh, an accountable manager uh, that'll most likely be yourself to be honest for most people who are just sort of working uh, for themselves you'll be the accountable manager uh, and obviously the ops manual will either be in uh, a company name if it's your own company if it's a limited company uh, or it might just be in your own name depending on kind of which avenue you've gone with I guess really and uh, the most important thing obviously is to make sure that the 
operator ID either matches one or the other. So it either needs to match your name if you're a, a person working uh, sort of on your own uh, or as a um, sort of a, a trading as company, I guess, really. Or if you do have a limited company, then the operator ID needs to be in that company's name. So it kind of all needs to match up, if that makes sense. And that's probably the most important thing that the CAA will probably start to pick up on in the future. Um, so making sure you either get it right the first time or if it's not correct, you might have to potentially get another operator ID, unfortunately probably pay another £9 to get it to kind of match up with the ops manual. So get it right to start with, that's the easiest thing. Uh, and then obviously inside the ops manual, you'll also have any other pilots that you'll kind of have uh, listed. So if you've got um, a work colleague, someone else with the GVC qualification, they don't need their own specific operational authorization. They can be written into your ops manual, which means then they're working underneath the umbrella of your operational authorization. That's the idea behind that. So you can have any number of pilots in there actually uh, listed and it's kind of the uh, probably easier and much cheaper way of doing things rather than, you know, if you had eight pilots and you had eight OAs, that would be quite expensive <laughs> every year, wouldn't it? Um, whereas you could just have one and actually have the eight pilots listed in, in that one document. So they're all covered. But obviously, like uh, Matthew was um, alluding to, they all need to be aware of the processes, how you operate as a, as a sort of a company, uh, because obviously if they were to have an accident uh, it, it may fall down to yourself not sort of being uh, sort of in charge of your crew or something like that depending on what kind of happens I suppose really so that's kind of the company structure uh, and sort of liability side of things I suppose really uh, next one Matthew what's that the uh, risk management side yeah of things. that's right so again I think this is one of the uh, stumbling blocks for a lot of people when they work their way through the GVC course and when they come out and do their flight test I find that um, the risk is one of the areas where people do struggle and I think it's um, this this episode isn't going to focus around sort of specific details of uh, sort of risk analysis and and that side of things but what is important though is that whatever your risk management plan is that's listed in your operations manual uh, is followed the same as we've been saying about other things so we can't, for example, uh, put into our risk register that we will always cordon the area at every flight uh, location and then at some point along the line decide, well, this looks safe enough, we won't bother today. Uh, because, of course, if we have an incident, we haven't followed the ops manual. So it's not. Uh, I'm not saying that you always have to cordon. I'm saying if your ops manual says you always have to cordon, then you always have to cordon. So following what's in the ops manual is, of course, uh, the most crucial element to that. Yeah. Uh, and I think most of the time in these documents, you know, they're, they're written in such a way that means you'll kind of have the choice. So if we go back to the cordon example, it might say where necessary, you know, use yeah. a cordon. And that means then you can decide. So I think that's kind of important. It all depends on yeah. kind of the way it's written. But going back to the risk assessment side of things, obviously, it's one of those documents that will kind of grow with yourself. So that's what I always tell students, you know, to start with, you might think, risk assessments are pretty difficult but once you've got a good three or four to start with uh, you'll then go to another job you might then pick up another two risks that you thought about you can add them then to the risk assessment and now you've got six and you can keep doing that and you know after a while you'll have quite a good set of risks that actually means that when you turn up for you know let's say your 10th job everything's already been done because there's nothing untoward that you've missed already because you've already sort of got all that information sort of backed up it's always good then to have um, uh, sort of a blank space just in case there's something strange that's on that location you can add in and uh, again that gets added to the uh, to the risk assessment as well so it's one of those things that kind of builds up and it is important because 
when I've worked with um, filming companies and, uh, you know, using a drone, let's say on set, before you've even arrived, um, they'll want to see a risk assessment or a, a risk register purely because, yeah. you know, they need to see that paperwork before they send all their paperwork off to, you know, whoever they're talking to. So it's one of those things that can't just be done on the day. It'll be this document, like I say, that you've got access to that you can send off to people um, as and when. So that's that's the idea behind the risk assessment. And like I said, it will grow uh, with you as well. And uh, same sort of thing for the planning, I think, isn't it, Matthew, too? Yeah, that's right, of course. So your sort of uh, set method of doing flight planning will be included in your operations manual. And it's very important that you follow through with all of that planning for every job. As we sort of indicate in our GVC course, you can't just arrive on site and sort of think, well, here's an opportunity. It should be fine today. I've done this before. We need to do the planning. We need to be confident of the airspace that we're operating in and and, uh, and that way minimize the risk and minimize the, the, the chance of finding ourselves in a position where we've had an incident, but we haven't followed the procedures that we've committed to by submitting our ops manual and being issued a permission based on that ops manual. Um, I think that's the uh, the ops manual side of things covered, Matthew. Have we covered most points there? I think we have. Yeah, we? I'd say we've pretty much covered it. I think um, you could comment more than me, Tom, in the sort of turnaround time of people receiving the proof of their ops manual uh, and versus the time that they come back and say, yes, that's perfect, I'm happy with it. And it's sort of a clear indication that they haven't necessarily taken the time to read through it and, and fully understand it. So I think we must really encourage people to do so. And, and they'll certainly learn something through through going through that process for sure. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. You know, again, some people maybe can read a, a 60 page document in five minutes. You know, who am I to say? <laughs> but uh, but no, you know, obviously it is good to understand the document because obviously it all becomes even more important if the worst should happen. You know, like anything, if, if you were to have an accident, that's when they'll start to trawl through the document and say, you know, did you do that? Did you do this? And if you haven't, obviously that's when it might be a little bit more embarrassing for yourself. So it's always good to yep. understand the processes and just work from them, I suppose, really too um so yeah that quite nicely um takes us to kind of the uh the next part of the uh, the, the podcast i suppose and uh, obviously we're talking about kind of what happens after the qualification uh obviously we've just mentioned uh, a few things obviously flight logs maintenance and keeping your ops manual kind of uh up to date and un understood as well the next thing is obviously making sure that you carry on improving with your flying you know you've passed your flight test that's brilliant but i would say the flight test is is fairly basic realistically you know that's kind of the the bare minimum that you need to keep uh sort of um you know sort of uh, yeah m m relevant and present i suppose really so on top of that obviously you can become a much better pilot and there are a multitude of different ways of being able to do that really and uh, yeah I think we'll let Matthew take the lead on this one so uh, yeah the first word comes up three times Matthew what, what's that? <laughs> yeah that's right so uh, so the first one that we're talking about of course is practice 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 there's no such there's nothing better than practice to improve any skill of course but I think as Tom's said uh, what can happen with a lot of people as well is they get their qualification and they start sort of marketing themselves and looking for opportunities and it may take some time before you find yourself in a position where you can start carrying out commercial jobs. Um, but what is important, though, is that you're well prepared when you do get that opportunity so that you make the most of those opportunities when they do come your way. So as we've said, practicing with your aircraft is really important. And there's a few sort of elements that we can break this down into. So the first thing that I would suggest, which I think is a common mistake, is to not always practice in perfect conditions. We've had people sort of uh, rebook their flight test multiple times, waiting for that golden opportunity to be able to do it in great conditions. 
the reality is when you get out into the real world, you won't always have that option. So you may need to fly in relatively rough conditions. You may need to fly in a relatively confined space. So when you go out and practice, don't always just go out to the same, same football field where there's loads of space on a nice sunny day. Challenge yourself, put yourself in a little bit of a tricky situation. Obviously be conscious of the risk and don't sort of risk any uninvolved people. Um, follow the regulations while you do this, but challenge yourself and that should push you to sort of improve on your skills and of course uh, be able to maneuver the aircraft in different orientations, pointing towards yourself, flying through a gap, that sort of thing. So I think that'll certainly improve things for sure. And then the other thing that I've also thought about is uh, working with your camera in different lighting conditions. I think that's a topic on its own, uh, which we could talk about for hours and I think Adam could obviously contribute a lot to that, <laughs> but that's not really the purpose of today's conversation. But I think it's important that you do understand all of the settings and you go around and work with the camera in different lighting conditions. And I suppose theoretically you could even do a little bit of practice without even flying the aircraft. So just play around with the camera, see what the settings do, take some recordings, have a look at the footage in different conditions to sort of gain uh, more on those skills. Yeah. Exactly right. Yeah, they're great points there to be aware of. And kind of um, uh, sort of building on that, I suppose, really, is, is also understanding uh, your aircraft and its capabilities as well. You know, again, they're pretty complicated now with the apps and all the software and the different uh, sort of limits you can set and uh, different parameters that you can tweak. And it's a good idea to kind of, uh, you know, spend a good few evenings maybe just going through the app itself with the aircraft, maybe on without the propellers so it's not dangerous. And you can actually go through and just, just tweak bits and pieces and see see what happens. You know, I always love doing that with a new piece of uh, kit or, you know, a gadget. It's always good to sort of, you know, have a go with it, but then go back to the instructions or go back to a tutorial video and really see all the little bits and pieces, you know, just to make sure you're using it to its, uh, um, yeah, it's, all, it, it's full advantage, I suppose, really as well. So it's uh, good to be aware of that side of things. Um, obviously, uh, in that same sort of topic, uh, these aircraft do have lots of different flight modes. So it's really good to kind of understand the flight modes and uh, ex know what to expect, I think, with the flight modes is the most important thing as well. You don't want to be, you know, going off somewhere and someone asks you to do a, an orbit and you've never done it before. So you think, OK, well, surely I just click orbit and it'll do it, you know, because it might as I've kind of had experience of before, do something a little bit odd before it starts to do what you expect. And, you know, if there's a tree in the way of that odd manoeuvre, <laughs> it's going to be a little bit embarrassing. Uh, embarrassing. So it's always good to, uh, yeah, go through all the different flight modes, practice them in a big area, know what to expect, uh, and also crucially know what to do uh, to stop them as well. So again, yeah. if the aircraft suddenly starts going off sideways to do this great big orbit and it's gone the wrong direction and there's a tree in the wrong direction, again, you need to be able to stop it, take control and maneuver away from that because there's nothing worse than watching your aircraft doing something strange and you're saying, oh, what's it doing? What's it doing? You know, it's, it's <laughs> not the excuse you want to hear as a as sort of someone who's hired you to do their, uh, you know, their, their wedding shoot or something like that. You know, you need to be in control of the aircraft. So knowing how that works is uh, is very important too. Um, again, if you can emulate the flight modes yourself, it's always good practice too. So, you know, watch the aircraft do an orbit, but then see if you can do it as well. Because again, that extra little bit of flying, a uh, little bit of muscle memory, you know, will, will actually give you the control that you might need when you use an aircraft that maybe doesn't have these auto flight modes. And then suddenly you think, oh, well, God, I can't do anything now. But it's like, well, hopefully you can because you practice them and you can fly around in a circle and you can do a, a corkscrew up, you know, above above yourself and stuff like that. And it's always good to have uh, the skills, but also, you know, use the aircraft to its full potential.
um, as well. Um, so um, I think that almost gets us to the end. Um, another thing to be aware of as well, and uh, obviously uh, I think is a big shock, I suppose, or a, maybe a small shock for people is having someone with you who's actually asking you to do different flight maneuvers because normally you're on your own you're choosing what to do the first experience of that is actually on the flight test you know uh, the instructors pretend to be clients and they say oh go over here go up go down look at that look at from the left look from the right and actually they some people have said oh this is weird you know I'm, I'm normally choosing what I want to do myself and you need to get used to that as well so be prepared maybe bring someone along with you who can kind of give you these kind of simulated shots that they might want because then you'll get used to kind of how people ask for things because they might ask for them in a way that you're not expecting and you know there's that yeah. kind of confusion to start with so it's good to kind of get that and you say oh right you mean camera this way and over the top from that direction instead and so mm. practicing that will really help you when you've got a client actually asking you who doesn't really know too much about drones and they might ask you in a weird way so it's always good to uh, be prepared uh, for that side of things uh, as well so um, I think that basically takes us to the end of that little section is there anything else Matthew that you might have thought of as I've been chatting so, yeah, around, or... I think you've pretty much covered um most of what I would have said in that segment as well. I think um, the last bit you were talking about with having somebody directing you and so on, I think what's important mm. is the more comfortable you are flying the aircraft and understanding its systems and so on, as you've been talking about, the better you're going to be able to maintain spatial awareness and so on as well. So those extra factors that are all equally important won't get forgotten when you start focusing in on trying to please the clients. So I think exactly what you're saying is taking somebody with you is a really good suggestion uh, to sort of get out there and simulate these things. Because I think what's important is to be prepared and not be practicing on this commercial job, whether it's your first or your 10th job, you shouldn't be practicing on somebody else's watch, you know, I think, um, it's important that you are prepared. And I think another factor which is often overlooked is processing of data after you've been out and done the job or perhaps sort of transferring data on site if that's what's been arranged and that's what's planned. Make sure that you have a sort of process in place and a plan in place to be able to handle the data because I think it's something that is easily overlooked and if you aren't familiar with the technology and with the sort of process of doing these type of jobs, you could easily find yourself overwhelmed by that side of things as well. So go through the process, take some footage, download it, store it, share it, etc., so that you know what you're going to be able to do, what the limitations are in terms of sort of transferring the files. Are they too big? Can you email them? Can't you email them? Do you need to use an online platform to do that, etc.? So I think that whole side of things is certainly something that overwhelms people quite often. Yeah. Exactly. And I think it comes back to the uh, yeah the, the three word phrase that we said right at the beginning uh, of this little topic and it's practice, isn't it? You know, if you if That's you can it. think yeah. um, exactly what you're going to have to do in the future, if you can practice it, then it shouldn't be too much of a problem and it should get easier, shouldn't it? That's the idea. So, yeah, That's exactly right. Yeah. right. I think that... Uh, finish that off very nicely indeed. Um, cool. So um, the last thing we're going to talk about now is actually uh, another thing that you can obviously do in the future once you're qualified, etc. And that's actually adding another type of aircraft uh, to your OA or to your hangar, I suppose you could call it as well. And so I would say 90, I'm going to push towards 95% of people who come through uh, UAV Hub are, are flying a multi-rotor, you know, which again is fine. It's the easiest one, I think, to get started with. Uh, might potentially be the cheapest and uh, it definitely gets 
gets very good results. But remember, there are uh, a few other aircraft that you could look at depending on the application, I suppose, really. So uh, the first one that we've briefly touched upon um, several uh, several months ago now, I think, um, is, is the fixed wing. So uh, again, that normally is the other one that people think about. It's like, oh, right, I've got the multi-rotor. I'm interested in fixed wing. Um, a very small number of people come through doing a fixed wing uh, flight test, but it is an aircraft that can be used and is, is very good at what it does. Um, obviously, there is uh, sort of other things to think about. You can't just grab the aircraft and off you go. So if you do want to get a different type of aircraft, so whether it be a multi-rotor or a fixed wing, depending on what you've got, um, you'll have to do another flight test on that type of aircraft, okay? Because you need to prove that you know what you're doing with it and how to handle it and that you can also fly it as well. So that'll be another uh, flight test with your um, RAE. Um, once you've got that, you'll then have to kind of notify the CIA that you've got this other aircraft. So um, again, it would be an amendment to the OA. So if you're only if you've only been qualified for six months, you could add a fixed wing on, but they would charge you. Um, I think it's about 190 pounds for this amendment. So it would be a, a quite quite a hefty fee I think yes so what we recommend normally is to just wait until your natural renewal happens anyway because then you're going to be paying 190 pounds regardless so why not add in the extra aircraft at the same time you don't get charged twice I don't think unless they've changed that but uh, again I think it is only one charge so you could renew and add the aircraft in as well so that's obviously um, uh, sort of a big benefit um, and I guess yeah before we move on to the last aircraft what are sort of the benefits and uh, maybe the downsides of the fixed wing uh, Matthew in your opinion what do you think? Well of course um, there comes a time when uh, you start looking at different technologies for a specific reason and the biggest benefit of fixed-wing aircraft over multi-rotors is that in effect they are more efficient in terms of energy consumption uh, when we start looking at flight time and distances that they can fly and so on. So uh, obviously the multi-rotor consumes energy continually to carry its weight where the fixed-wing aircraft uses an engine or an electric motor to pull it into forward motion and the wings are actually carrying the weight in effect. So it uses less battery power to stay airborne. So flight times are quite drastically improved. The sort of area that you can fly over is larger because they tend to fly faster. Of course, within the UK, we do need to bear in mind that we're supposed to be operating within visual line of sight under standard permissions. So that's a consideration. Even if you have an aircraft that's capable of doing massive distances, you'd obviously need to operate it legally. Um, but those, of course, are a couple of the, uh, the sort of pros. They sometimes can be a little bit quieter and potentially lighter as well, depending on the type of aircraft, although you do get fixed wing aircraft, which are quite large and not necessarily very light, um, but they do just have one motor and it tends to run at quite low power to sort of maintain a constant height. So they can be quite relatively quiet uh, while surveying and so on. The downsides, I think, of uh, fixed-wing aircraft is that they do need a lot more space to be operated in terms of takeoff and landing. So, of course, like a full-sized aircraft, uh, they, do, they need a sort of run-up to build up airspeed before that they can lift off the ground and start climbing. And you need a considerable sort of safety margin in that. We don't want to be operating from a 50-meter-long runway because the manufacturer says it can get off the ground in 45 meters we know we're going to want a 100 meter strip if we've got an aircraft that re that realistically needs 50 meters to get airborne so plenty of space required these these aircraft tend to be used in wide open spaces uh, doing things like uh, mapping of mine of a sort of open cast mine for example overflying large areas where there's plenty of space you wouldn't be flying this aircraft in a built-up area and over a residential area or anything like that 
it's very unlikely. Tom, as you said, there's one other type of aircraft that we haven't spoken about. And of course, it's a little bit of a mix of the two. So what are we talking about as the final uh, sort of type of aircraft? Yeah, so this is uh, basically known as a hybrid aircraft, um, or as other people call it, uh, a vertical takeoff and landing aircraft as well. So it's like you've mentioned, basically, a, a mixture of the two. So you've... Uh, I don't know whether we'll have any pictures or anything like this. Adam might work his magic mightily on the video. But uh, again, if you're just listening, then I'll try and um, sort of describe it. So essentially, it's just uh, a fixed wing aircraft um, with um, almost like a frame around the wings and the fuselage, which houses um, f maybe four motors or, or maybe even two. But it's normally four, I think, really. Four, um, yeah. So it almost looks like a fixed wing with a, a multi-rotor kind of glued on top of it, I suppose, if you want to think <laughs> of it like that. Um, and so... And it kind of does exactly what it says on the tin, really. So it uh, enables the uh, fixed wing to literally take off vertically like a drone. So it'll yep. go straight up. It'll, it can then hover. Uh, you'll then flick a switch or, you know, uh, press a button, I suppose, depending on what the aircraft is like. That'll boot up uh, the rear motor, the one that's kind of pushing the plane normally. That'll spin up. Um, the drone or the multi-rotor will then start to fly forwards and as it does so the wings will start to take the weight and the motors then on the multi-rotor side of things will slow down and turn off effectively and it then becomes your fixed wing uh, probably with a little bit more drag I would say Matthew potentially with that on board um, but uh, again that's then straight into fixed wing mode fly around do whatever you need to do using very very uh, sort of small amounts of power Again, once uh, the battery is about to be depleted, rather than needing a great big runway to come in and land like a normal plane, you can effectively slow the aircraft down to almost when it stalls, I suppose, really. Uh, the electronics will sense that the other four motors will uh, spin up, grab the aircraft, keep it from dropping out of the sky, and then you can obviously start to land the aircraft as well. And I imagine with these systems, there'll be kind of a separate power source. So obviously when you run out of power with the fixed wing, you've still got another battery that can power the four motors for, you know, enough time for the aircraft to come into land. So that's that's it really. And we have been asked about this aircraft quite a lot. And to be honest, I've... I'm almost going to say I don't think I've ever seen one, to be honest, in real life. You know, no one's come through uh, a flight test that I've done with one. Uh, and I think a few people have mentioned them, but uh, I've never, never seen one. So they are. And I think really the main thing is because they are so expensive, you know, they are, you know, two aircraft together, you know. So essentially it's it's two aircraft uh, pricing as well, I suppose, too. But yeah, that's yeah right. like we've said Sorry, carry on, Matthew. Yeah. No, that's okay. I was just going to follow up and say that uh, I think it's it's an evolving technology. I think there's certainly big benefits to this because, of course, as you've said, you overcome the need for a big takeoff and landing area, which, of course, we said was the biggest downside of fixed-wing aircraft, mm. but you gain all of the other sort of positive sides of a fixed-wing aircraft. So uh, my experience uh, is that I have flown a, a, just a model aircraft which does this transition. It does a vertical takeoff and then horizontal flight. Um, slightly different configuration to what you've explained but the technology certainly is there and i think as i say it's an evolving science which i think will become more and more popular and perhaps more and more cost effective in future but i don't think for close-up work there's any foreseeable benefit in a hybrid like this i think they're, they're purely overcoming that need for big space uh, for takeoff and landing uh, to be able to do sort of survey work, perhaps on a mountainous area where there isn't a flat area for takeoff and landing, something like that. So yeah, it's very interesting technology for sure. And there are a lot of them out there and a lot being developed in a number of different configurations. But the one that you've spoken about certainly is the most common for sure. 
Yeah. Yeah, I think some of them kind of use the same propellers and motors and they turn, don't they, depending on what direction they're needed. So they're either vertical or they're pointing horizontal and stuff like that, which obviously may be slightly more complicated. Um, uh, I guess the most important thing that we need to mention here, I suppose, is if you did want to fly one of those, um, you have to be then certified on both multi-rotor and fixed wing. So there isn't, uh, at the moment, a hybrid kind of flight test. It would be two flight tests on both um, specific aircraft, which would then enable you then to fly uh, the, uh, the the hybrid or the, the VTOL aircraft as well. So yeah, you're looking at two flight tests and uh, you're then away with yeah. that type of aircraft. Interestingly, we've well. actually had a team come through in recent time with exactly that. So they do have a, a hybrid type aircraft and they intend to do some offshore survey work with it. And they did exactly that. They um, did their flight test. Uh, I think it was a team of four of them, if I remember correctly. The four of them did their flight tests on a Mavic, as which is of course the most common and multi-rotor and then they went over to a fixed wing aircraft which they used on the same day so this is sort of a, a proven process which we have actually done as well yeah exactly right yeah so uh there we go everyone so hopefully that was um useful and relevant for uh, a lot of people that kind of uh, takes us to the end of this episode um and uh i think before we just have the final goodbyes is there anything uh, you want to mention at all matthew or you have you said uh, i bit? think it's <laughs> tom i think it's a good time to to put another reminder in there to those people out there who've completed theory and haven't yet done their flight test to get out and do it the weather's deteriorating as we speak it's um uh, where are we now end of october as we're recording so certainly uh, the last bit of good light and so on for the season is with us now so get yourselves booked in get yourselves through uh, and get out there and um, and, and uh, make the most of your permissions as soon as possible yeah exactly yeah and i think it's going to get a little bit colder as well so think of poor uh, me and matthew outside all day long doing the flight <laughs> not just the two and, of us uh, anymore tom there's a few more we no, should be mentioning <laughs> that's true yeah i won't name drop any more people but uh, yeah you know who you are uh, and yeah we're obviously happy to do it and uh, yeah if you want to come through uh, again we just have to do slightly less because obviously there's slightly less daylight unfortunately that's so it, we'll yeah. try and uh, make the best of it and uh, yeah that's uh, that's great so um thanks everybody uh, for listening uh, again we'll uh, obviously see you next week uh, like normal uh, don't forget to like and subscribe to the podcast uh, that obviously helps us out uh, a great deal and uh, yeah the last thing i've got to say obviously is uh, fly safe and blue skies everyone speak to you soon <laughs>